no humanity They fire at our family Our flow will be the remedy Cause water got no enemy Hi everyone, this is Manuela from the Andrews Family Fund and today I'm so excited to be having a conversation with Jawan from Rise for Youth. Rise for Youth is a member organization of Youth First Initiative, one of AFF's grantee partners. Jawan, can you tell me a little bit about who you are and how did you get involved with Rise for Youth and what, what work are you doing with them? I am the current community organizer for Rise for Youth. Rise for Youth is a nonpartisan campaign that is committed to dismantling the youth prison system model by promoting the creation of community-based alternatives to youth incarceration. Our work centers the voice of impacted youth and communities in challenges, racial justice in Virginia. What in your personal life brought you to this particular work? And so I was doing a project for school, and my topic was school-to-prison pipeline. So during that time, mm-hmm. I utilized that time to understand, like, how the school-to-prison pipeline is really affecting the kids. My school's not having enough funding to provide guidance counselors, so they also mm-hmm. hire police officers. So instead of children seeing guidance counselors, they have police officers, or whereas students are getting in trouble. And once they get in trouble, they don't go to the principal's office to deal with that. They go to the SRO office person, which is the... Um, student resource officer, which is the actual police officer of that city. That's really what made me more passionate on working to end the school-to-prison pipeline and creating a better model of what a juvenile detention center should look like. So are you still in school now, Joanne? I am. I am a sophomore at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia. Right on. And what are you studying there? Um, I'm a political science with a minor in communication. Can you tell me a little bit about the community that you organize through Rise for Youth? And what are the kind of conversations and problems that you're seeing in the community that you're rallying everyone around to work on? Rise for Youth is based out of Richmond. I am satellite down here in the Hampton Roads area, Queen's Virginia, Norfolk, Hampton, where I'm in that area. Right now, we are advocating for healthy community secure care legislation. We think that Virginia must provide all young people with the opportunities they deserve to learn and grow from their mistakes. The healthy community secure care legislation that we're building will ensure that Virginia is following the best documented practices for youth justice and departing from racist and destructive status quotes. This legislation ensures that young people who need secure care receive it in small facilities of 30 beds or less and located in communities that the youth are from. And this legislation helps us move in the direction of creating deep, substantial public safety and combined investment in young people with investments in the community where they live. So essentially, the secure care facility model wouldn't just be we find the land and we're going to build it right here. It'll be we're going to get the overall statistics of where the kids are coming from in that area, and that's where we would like to place that secure care model. And we want to do 30 or less because statistics show that 30 or less is more impactful versus having 50-plus people in there. And these will also help them learn tools, continue their education, come up with team-building skills, learning things other than what they already know, which helps them once they get back into the community and they're out of these healthy community secure care facilities, that they can be better equipped in the community to continue on to not fall back into the system that we know as a school-to-prison pipeline. Can you talk a little bit, uh, Jawan, about what are the current either detention facilities or 
prison facilities where youth are held. In Virginia, African-American youth are seven times more likely than white youth, white youth to be incarcerated. And we feel like youth prisons are hurting families and making Virginia less safe. Virginia has two juvenile prisons are over 100 miles away from high high committing communities in Hampton Roads in North Virginia. A lot of times the family is not able to get to where they are. And prior to my position, Rise for Youth advocated in in White County, which is down here in the Hampton Roads area, for them to not create another youth prison, which would, they're putting money that could go into funding resources for the children in the community and building a youth prison, which means you're taking away money from them so that's one thing that we did prevent. We are really passionate about making sure that we grow from our mistakes. We don't live onto our mistakes. We don't let our mistakes continue who we are. And especially when you're young, you still have time to change. And we also feel like with youth prisons, um, families with youth under the age of 18 must pay child support to the Department of Juvenile Justice when they are in juvenile prisons. And then really? these parents don't have no control over the quality of service that the child receives while they're in these in these youth prisons. So parents are paying for their kids to be incarcerated. Right. That must be a huge financial burden on a lot of the families, especially given the percentage of young people who are incarcerated who come from low income communities. Um, what is can you explain like why is that happening and what is it what does it mean for a family to have to pay for the incarceration of their young person? I feel like it's very money hungry. It's very money driven. And it's not thinking about the long term of how it affects the people that pay taxes in this state. And they have to not only, if they're, if there are siblings and they're low income, now they have an extra bill that they have to pay the juvenile justice. Department of Juvenile Justice child support for their child's mistake. And then they have to take care of the kids at home if there are other siblings at home. Then they have to take care of any bills that they may have. In the prisons, we don't see how it's helping them. We just see how it's hindering them. What kind of services are already available in the community before young people get incarcerated? Like, Do you find that in these neighborhoods there's a lot of programs and a lot of supports for young people? Or is there, um, are there alternatives that they could be involved in before uh, getting incarcerated? Speaking for low-income home families, I don't see where there's a lot of resources for them other than what the government gives them. And sometimes that's not even always enough. So there's like a lack of access, the criteria for you all to, to be involved in programs. Um, it kind of blocks certain people out. And it, it sounds like there aren't that many programs to begin with for folks to get involved in. And everyone says, you know, when those supports and resources are available in community, there's a lower likelihood that young people end up being exposed to harmful systems if we can change the policies that criminalize them and, and arrest them in the first place, including getting police out of schools, like you mentioned, right? So things happen in school, and right away, you have to come into contact with the police officer instead of either restorative justice, where you, folks can work out disagreements, or even accessing a counselor to figure out what's on, underneath 
whatever either behavior or challenge the young person is encountering on that day. So thank you for explaining that. Can you tell me a little bit, Joanne, about like, you know, what are some of the, the things that you all are doing and when and who are you working with as you work together to build a movement to close youth prisons? Right now, I know in January we have our Schools Not Jails event and our legislative coordinator, Gary, is in charge of that. And so the purpose of the Schools Not Jails events is a community forum, our panel, this discussion that exposes, examine, and explores the impact of the push-out practices as such as like suspensions, practices used against Black students and students with disabilities in the Hampton Roads area. We've done this in Richmond as well. And so we use this event to help the community understand what the push-out looks like because also while I was doing the project, students with disabilities such as like autism, ADHD, ADD, because not all the time teachers are equipped and trained in that area to work with them if they're in a regular class setting. They're also, they're often labeled as disruptive, loud, bothering the class, and so they'll send them out, which means that they could possibly get suspended, which means that they're getting pushed out because of something that they can control for medical reasons. We just introduced our legislation for the Secure Care Healthy Models on November 12th in Hampton, Virginia at Wise Thomas. And so we just want to make sure that everybody knows what Secure Care and Healthy Models is. Some of the people we worked with are Virginia's ACLU, Delegate Ward, and Senator Locke. In your work, uh, the work that you've been doing, Joanne, do you find that legislators are open to listening to young people and their stories and experiences? And are they following your recommendations for how to do this better? Now I find legislators to be more open to younger people's opinions because we are the next generation that's coming up. And so one of the things that I also advocate for and that I love to bring on board, especially with this legislation that affects kids that are 18 and under, is kids that are 18 and under. And that's not just the kids that do it just to add it to their resume for college, but the kids that have actually been impacted by the juvenile justice system, kids that are actually coming from low-income areas that can see how this would better them going into the system if they were to go into the system versus them going into a regular youth prison created by the Department of Juvenile Justice. And it's a better way for them to not fall back into that system because once they get into that system, sometimes it's hard for people to get out, especially when you are black and brown. Um, have you worked with young people who've come out and what are some of the um, challenges that you see um, after they come out if they if they were in a larger prison system and not in a secure care facility? Comparing a youth prison to the secure care home, to the secure care healthy communities facility, they're two totally different things. They'll get one-on-one attention with a counselor. They'll receive mental health. We'll have mental health specialists come in. We'll have teachers come in and help teach the kids, whether they've dropped out or whether they're still in school or they're behind in school, to help them get together. We'll have people like that, that have started their own businesses and speak about how they started their business and what they might have came from because they might have went through the system, and that's why they had to start their own business. Or we'll have somebody come in that does, like, culinary. And if a culinary institution 
program that can give you cert that can get you certified comes into this facility, once you get out, you can get a job in a restaurant versus you getting out of a juvenile juvenile justice prison prison and the only thing you know is to go back and sell on the block. I know that you you Rise for Youth is um part of a national group of youth leaders. So just curious, like when do you all get together and what kind of work do you guys do when you come together? When we all come together, we just recently came together. We were all just in Alabama. We just look, we talk about what each state is doing. And so we'll praise, like, as as information come in and stuff is passed and stuff is, and youth prisons are shut down, um, it's sent out mass-wide to all of Youth First Partners. And so we can look at how they did it or see how what they did could actually work in Virginia or how what Virginia's doing might be able to work in New Jersey and vice versa. So it's just like we can all strategic plan based off of what each other are, what each, what each of us are doing in different states. When you guys got together in Alabama, was there anything that you learned from your peer leaders that was particularly inspiring or you're hoping you could bring to Virginia or, or even teach to the other states that comes out of Virginia? What I would want to teach is telling everybody that they have a voice. You know, when we went to, when we were in Alabama, we all don't come from the same backgrounds. We all don't come from two-parent homes. We all, you don't have to be white to advocate for black rights. You don't have to be black to say that we all need to be equal. You don't have, you you don't have, you can advocate for something better than just, for, than just yourself. Teaching that, because people just often see their views and opinions and try to pivot it off of each other and it doesn't get us to the bigger picture. It makes us work together, which makes it harder to reach the bigger picture. That's awesome. And I saw that, um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the report that the really exciting report that I think you all released recently on, I think it was, um, is it recommendations from the, from, from the field on your vision for youth justice? I think there were nine recommendations in your report. Have you seen that? Can you tell me a little bit about that report? That was from a visioning session that Hernan, myself, and another person did at Cities United, which is an organization based out of Louisville, Kentucky, which is which their initiative is nationwide. Um, it's adopted by the mayors of that city, whether they choose to do it. Um, any marriage can come in at any time that they want of the period that they're doing the program. And their goal, their common goal is to end gun violence against black males by 2025 by 50%. And so we did it there. Um, we, one of the reasons why we did it was at Cities United in that youth leader, in that youth leader pre-conference, it was multiple states in that room. It was multiple cities. It was multiple people that didn't come from the same background. And that showed that visioning session right there alone showed that we all see the common goal, but what do we need to do to get to the common goal? And those recommendations were came from people who have been shot, has lived that what people deem as the street life, have came from people who has higher education, who have their bachelor's and bachelor's and master's degrees, people who are still in college people who are in high school, people who are learning how to advocate in this work. It was just a lot of different people, and it ranged from, like, 
16-year-olds to 24-year-olds in that one room alone. And so all of those recommendations came from stuff that they saw fit with the money that was given to us. And I believe it was 197000 it takes to keep one youth, per, one youth in the youth prison in Virginia a year. That's almost $200,000 on one young person in prison. What, what were some of the recommendations that, that the group came up with around the vision that you all have for, for youth justice? Just off the top of my head, one of the things that I know would be um, mental health, more money that goes into the community that could also provide jobs, um, more guidance counselors. I know that was one that was given. It's some, it reminds me of a process that Andrew's Family Fund will be helping embark upon for our 20th year anniversary where we're going to continue to support groups to come up with other visions for the youth justice um, space. And so, you know, what would it mean in 20 years' time if we have no youth prisons, which is, I know, the tagline for Youth First, nokidsinprisons.org. So really excited that y'all are doing this work, Joanna, and that you um, are helping lead other young people there. I'm wondering if you have any closing thoughts that you might want to share for any listeners who are either not connected or don't know any young person who's been impacted by the youth justice system or anybody who's involved that you think you may want to help share some valuable lessons or give some words of inspiration to keep doing this good work. I would say never let nobody discourage you. Never let another person's opinion of you hinder you from doing what you see fit. Do what makes you happy. You have to, Toni Morrison once said, um, you have to advocate for something more than just yourself. That's really all I have to say, but you can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Rise for Youth, R-I-S-E for Youth. That's fantastic. Thank you for reminding all of us listening that we need to keep working on behalf of others and that what we think about ourselves is what matters. It's We really have to hold ourselves and other young people of color up who have a tremendous brilliance to bring to their communities and just need some uh, support and opportunities to do so. So thanks, Joanne, for making time to talk with us today. And we'll make sure to follow the Instagram handles and um, continue to connect with Youth First Initiative and NoKidsInPrison.org. Thanks, Joanne. Losing all humanity, they fire at our family. Our flow will be the remedy, cause water got no enemy. So that was Jawan, everybody, from Rise for Youth uh, in Virginia, and he's a powerful youth leader and part of a broader group of young people who are working with the Youth First Initiative. So we actually have with us Hernan Carvente from Youth First. He's the coordinator of this amazing cohort of young people who are doing national work to close all youth prisons. And Hernan, I know you were here listening, and as, as Jawan shared a little bit of his wisdom and his work within the state of Virginia, and I also know that you're working with a lot of other young people more broadly across the country. So welcome, and thanks for joining us. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your work at Youth First with youth like Jawan and some of the things you guys are working on? Yeah, for sure. So thank you again for having me, Manuela. And Jawan, as always, is, is a rock star, like many of the other youth leaders who are a part of the network. And so I'm the National Youth Partnership Strategist at Youth First. And what that really means is that I get to work with amazing young people across all of the different states that have partnered with Youth First um, in this longer vision of closing youth prisons and reinvesting that money into community alternatives. And so 
as a national initiative, uh, we consider ourselves a campaign of many campaigns. And so most of our work is really on investing all of our time and energy into building these campaigns in different states that want to push for a complete transformation of the youth justice system in those states, but more particularly for the closure of some of the institutions that have, again, perpetuated so much violence um, on behalf of or on on young people of color um, in those states. And so the bulk of our work is really um, to support the development of these campaigns, so offering campaign strategy support, um, offering media communication support, but also offering different trainings and other supports to the different partners on the ground, not just the adult partners, but in particular, the young people. And so we at Youth First believe that young people should be at the center of every conversation that revolves around them. And in the topic of youth incarceration and closing youth prisons, young people, of course, young people of color are at the center of that conversation since they disproportionately represent all the people that are in these facilities. And so we're actively thinking about how we're engaging young people in our campaigns. And, you know, Jawan um, expressed a lot of the work that he is doing at Rise for Youth, but we have a lot of youth in all of the other state campaigns that have been hired on, as part of staff to lead the strategy around engaging young people in those campaigns, but also to be active contributors to the direction of the campaigns and, and to really focus on directly impacted communities being at the center of the conversations. And so, Cities United was one of the opportunities that we had recently with Jawan and other youth leaders to engage in conversation with young people from across the country to talk about what we really want to envision in this country and to really asking the very upfront question, which is, can we reimagine or re-envision a world without youth prisons and starting the conversation from that premise and then asking young people in communities to help us uh, come up with the recommendations for things like that. And so Cities United was but one example of many. Um, and and Jawan, uh, along with Rise for Youth and all of our other state campaigns, um, have been doing the active work of making sure that we're including uh, community members in those conversations, but that we're also actively pushing ahead um, and pushing for this larger vision of closing youth prisons, which also ties into a broader conversation happening nationally around closing adult prisons as well and reinvesting more into restorative healing-based solutions for everybody who's been impacted by the justice system. I know you've been working for some time developing the leadership of younger people nationally to really weigh in on this conversation and be at the forefront of reimagining and leading that change work. Can you tell me a little bit about like, what are some of the talents and gifts that the young people bring to that work? And then also some of the challenges that those of us who are committed to supporting young people what are some of the, the, the challenges that the young people face in doing that work, in coming out of the system and coming back into community, um, trying to really change the systems that they were just involved in? So when we talk about young people engaging in these campaigns, we often forget, um, again, that they have so much potential and so much innovation that exists within them and that all you need to do sometimes is give them that opportunity to be in a space where they are leading the conversation and then you just see them flourish and actually engage not just their peers but other people in their community around all of these really intentional conversations around what a community solution or alternative could look like as opposed to a youth prison and so for example when we did a visioning session in philadelphia one young man um, in that session actually told me you know i built paintball courts in all of the communities across philadelphia and when I asked them why paintball courts, right, you, you know, you might not learn anything um, while shooting a paintball, 
he said to me, well, it would be better to be shooting each other with paintballs as opposed to bullets and nobody would die. And so I think for me, that particular moment of me realizing that as I get older, these innovative or creative solutions, which seem like just fun opportunities, are actually solutions to gun violence in some communities or are actual solutions that young people are coming up with because of the environment that they are currently living in. And so for me, how working with young people has meant really looking deep within myself and looking at the adults in this space and asking them the very intentional question, do we have all of the solutions or should we be tapping into the innovative thinking and creative energy of young people as we engage in this work? And so to you know, sort of pivot into what that means for us, even for myself now at 27 and sort of transitioning away from the youth um, voice, youth leader role to a more adult support and ally to my peers and to other younger people who are entering this work. It really is about us sort of taking a step back, realizing that we've held a lot of space and energy and power in this movement, um, not just to close youth prisons, but to you know abolish the death penalty for young people or ending juvenile life parole for young people, or just you know getting rid of all of these draconian laws that have essentially um, continuously put young people in the in the in the firm grip of the criminal justice system, and then ultimately setting them up for failure upon release. And so most of the conversations that have been held in the last seven years that I've been out um, have always been led by adults and have always been led by leaders who, again, um, maybe at some point were youthful and started this work as young people, but eventually have gotten older and have still held the space. Of, of having that megaphone on behalf of young people. And so challenging other adults in this space to relinquish their power and to really um, put their money where their mouth is and just give young people some of their roles and actually being able to provide that more supportive structure of mentoring, leadership development, professional development, but ultimately to just provide young people with the opportunity that they need in order for them to be successful and to truly lead us into the next wave of transformation in the youth justice work that we do now. That's really powerful, Hernan, because you're talking about a, an arc of learning and development in your own leadership, and you mentioned that it was seven years out. Can you tell me a little bit about what brought you to this work and why why is this issue so important for, for everyone to contend with? I came into this work um, seven years ago after having been released from a juvenile prison myself, after having served four years uh, for the crime of attempted murder, and I never mentioned the crime to glorify it or to glamorize it in any way. I mention it because when I got when I came out seven years ago, that felony, that crime, that mistake that I did, um, that I committed at 15 years old, um, essentially continued to get in the way of my own development and my own growth when I, when I was released at 20 years old. And so for me, having faced all of the challenges of being able to get into school, getting financial aid, having been denied 15 jobs, having to deal with so so much instability at home and just dealing with an array of other issues for the past seven years has really made it clear to me that all of this work, although important to me, is very personal. And I really emphasize the, the need to have young people involved in this process because more often than not, when I first got out, my voice was representative of many. And as I always used to say, I was only one of you know, 50 of 100 of a 1,000 of tens of thousands of young people that come into contact with the system every year. And so I did not want to become the only young person on the mic holding the space. And and truth be told, you know, um, I still to this day um, continue to figure out creative ways of 
letting go of opportunities that are offered to me and extending those opportunities to other young people so that they can develop their leadership because my entrance into this field has been me being overextended because I was one of a few people who would speak very calmly about this, this, the changes that needed to be made about the system. And I've come to a place now in my leadership, in my organizing work, where I fundamentally believe that we can get rid of prisons, that we can look for community solutions, and that the true answer and key to all of this is young people, and that young people will be the ones to truly tell us um, and guide us into that next wave that we can fall, fall into in terms of uh, what the next vision uh, for youth justice in America will be. And to me, um, having been now for only seven years and seeing the transformation from going to youth voice to youth leadership to seeing youth as partners, I hope to one day just see this um, continuous pipeline of youth leaders who are just taking over positions in government and philanthropy and organizing spaces and that we just continue to give directly impacted young people that opportunity to be at the forefront of this work. That's powerful. And it takes an intentional decision to do so and a commitment, right? And one of the things that um, I've always appreciated about you, Adnan, is how you always help others understand the kinds of support that young people need to grow in this work, especially if they were directly impacted. Can you talk to me a little bit about what Youth First is doing to develop young people, um, either with some of the healing work that's needed so they can continue to show up as leaders or other ways that you guys support them? Yeah, so in recent months, you know, to answer the question of how we're supporting youth leaders, we've tried to really be intentional about having conversations with our state partners around engaging in trainings and other opportunities around healing-centered engagement. And so most recently, as Shawan mentioned, we did a training in Alabama uh, where we brought uh, a gentleman by the name of uh, Dr. Sean Ginwright, and he has been doing a lot of work around healing justice with young men of color. And he came to Alabama and spoke to all of our state partners around the importance of taking care of one another, the importance of taking care of just yourself as a person, and that one of the most radical acts of justice is self-care. And that ultimately, if we truly want to have the most impact and the best impact in this work, that the work of healing cannot be um, ad hoc to everything that we're doing, but that it must also be central to the work that we're doing. And so one of the things that we've done um, at Youth First, again, has been sort of bringing people like Sean Jinwright to offer this kind of uh, sort of rhetoric and, and theoretic um, sort of backing uh, around why we should have young people engaged in healing-centered work, but also why at the core of all of our strategies uh, to close youth prisons, we should be prioritizing the well-being of young people. And so some of the work um, is very theoretical. Some of the other work is like me sometimes hopping on the phone with some young person who is in another state and supporting them through a crisis moment or just having a conversation with them about what supports they currently need around housing, around mental health, around their finances, et cetera, right? And so, you know, we can't do the work of helping people if we're not helping the people who are essentially doing the work to help people. And that I think for me has become very important and part of what I also uh, do very intentionally in this work. But to answer your question, Manuela, on a more personal level, I am very um, radically vulnerable with the young people that I work with about you know, me being in therapy now after seven years of incarceration for the past four months, me having overcome this suicidal um, ideation last year and, and, you know, being in the space of trying to 
really prioritize my own well-being, my own leadership, and that I lead from a place of love and healing and not just from just trying to spread myself in to try to save everyone at the same time and knowing that I too need saving in this work. And so that's some of the messaging that I also communicate to the youth leaders directly who are able to engage with me. I engage them as if they were family, as if they were peers in this work for years for you know that I've worked with. And I think part of why I do that is because I know that human connection is key to this work. And the young and you know Jawan can attest to this maybe and others that the human connection is is definitely what we try to emphasize in this work, that it's more than just about closing youth prisons, but that it's also about taking care of one another. And that truly, if we are to close youth prisons and invest in community, that that also means investing in the staff and in the people that are engaged in this work 100% all the time. I really appreciate that, like, fearless, radical vulnerability, Hernan, that you always show in your leadership. Like, many people just wouldn't lead with what is really happening, you know? What are, what are the supports that we all really need to continue to do good work? And I want to just lift up your courage in reducing or removing the stigma from our communities about naming um, these mental health uh, traumas that exist in, in our communities and really helping people who are trying to be in partnership uh, change their mind and broaden their scope of what are the kinds of capacity building supports that organizations and leaders need, what are the kinds of broader supports that are really transformative, not just the campaign and the win, but actually supporting the people and lifting up a whole alternative model that's really centering the wellness of everybody involved. And so thank you for your courage and always doing that. Everywhere I go and you show up with that that courage, including the courage to say, hey, I need a break, right? We're promoting sustainability. We're not promoting work yourself to the bone. <laughs> um, and I, right. I think that you training up Jawan and these other powerful leaders are really what the work is about. So with that, I want to see, do you have any words of wisdom, parting thoughts, either for your fellow uh, leaders in the movement or for other donors or funders that you think could really um, lean in in a, in a more supportive way to, to leaders in the youth justice movement? Yeah, so I think part of what I would say to anyone listening to this podcast is, you know, the work of helping people, um, you know, there is a saying that heal people, heal people. Um, right, and our hurt people hurt people. And I think part of what we really want to do now is, is strive for a movement that is collectively and actively um, supporting the healing of, of one another and each other, and that some of the funding that sometimes goes out to the world um, isn't, you know, a line item that says, you know, uh, a healing circle uh, training or, or something that is very geared towards this particular body of the work. And so, I would encourage other folk who are doing this to be intentional about actually offering um, that monetary support to be able to invest more time and energy into this healing work. Um, and that as much as you're doing policy advocacy or organizing or if you're in philanthropy, that healing is essential to all of us as human beings. And that if we're gonna continue this work of ending mass incarceration and truly pouring into our communities, that the only way that we're gonna be able to achieve that is by actually actively focusing on the humanity of each person and that that humanity can't be uh, fully seen or fully nurtured if we are not actively pouring love and energy into every single human being um, that is a part of this collective movement. And so just sending, you know, I, I would love to take that time to just say, 
I am sending each and every person who listens to this a lot of love and energy, um, and that I look forward to working with Jawan, Manuela, and others um, in this collective movement to close youth prisons and reinvest in community solutions. Thank you, Hernan and Jawan, and thank you to the Fierce Bold Family of Youth First Initiative and your member groups. We wish you all the best. Infinite blessings for that powerful work of organizing uh, communities, policymakers, legislators, um, narrative change partners to really get us to a world without youth prisons. So with that, we'll say see you later. And we just want to thank you guys once again for joining me. Water got no enemy, but everybody's trying to contain it. Water was made to be free. I'ma let the hook explain it. We go to church with these verses, but my verse is the worst though, ain't it? Ain't it? Ain't it? Losing all humanity, they fire at our family. Our flow will be the remedy, cause water got no enemy. You are listening to Water Got No Enemy by the Peace Poet. Gotta go home to my family. Why do, why do talk?